your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 11. We have been working through the Gospel of John, taking a fresh look at who Jesus is. We've noted that the Gospel of John is this wonderful literary accomplishment written in the first century about the life and ministry of Jesus. And one of the cool things about the Gospel of John is probably when John wrote this Gospel, he knew the traditions that were in the other three Gospels, what are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knew about them, but he intentionally crafted this gospel to be somewhat of a supplement to those, to fill in some of those gaps, even to tell stories that had not been previously told about Jesus. And today we have one of those stories that's not recorded in any of the other gospels, although some of the characters do make appearances in the other gospels. But what we find as we come to today's passage, which Steve read for us uh, this morning, is a much longer passage. I was like, Steve, can you read what do we have, like, like a total? I was going to have him read all 56, 57 verses of chapter 11, but um, Steve was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. So we said, okay, let's pick 15, and we'll go for that. But it's a, long, it's a long passage, but it brings us to this point in the narrative of the life of Jesus, and how John is retelling the life of Jesus, where we're going to start to turn a corner. That we're almost to the halfway point in the gospel, and one of the things that we noted with John, John doesn't tell everything about Jesus. As a matter of fact, at the end of the gospel, he'll say, Jesus did a lot more things than this. And that they can't all be recorded in this gospel, um, but I'm going to record these so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so John does not record a, a comprehensive amount of the signs or miracles of Jesus. He actually records seven of them and seven because the number of completion and I think we've said this before that if John were at Sesame Street it would be brought to you by the number seven anyway the book of Revelation these are the jokes everybody and they you probably have heard them before they're coming more and more all right but he's going to record seven the first one in chapter two Jesus turns water to wine to really good wine but he does it quietly and he doesn't do it in public he does it behind the scenes it's the first sign. In chapter 4 then, Jesus heals an official son, but he doesn't do it in person where all these people would stand around and be amazed. He does it from a distance. He does it from like 12 miles away. And they aren't even at home when they find out about it. They're, the servants are meeting the official halfway. So it's, quite a, it's kind of quiet, the second sign. And then there's a third sign. That Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and by this pool, in the pool of Bethesda, he heals a man who cannot walk. He's a paraplegic, and he can't walk, and he's trying to get in the water, and Jesus heals him, but he, but he slips off before the man is able to find him again. He does it quietly and secretly. But by chapter 6, word has gotten out about Jesus' healings, the many healings that are not recorded. And 5,000 military-aged males show up to follow him. And Jesus, in an account where John wants to make you think of Moses and the people of Israel, Jesus feeds these 5,000 with miraculous bread, like Moses did in the Exodus with manna. And then Jesus slips away again. And then Jesus, catching up to his disciples, he, he walks on water. And so we have these fourth and fifth signs of Jesus uh, in the gospel. And some wonder when Jesus is going to make himself known, that he's doing all these things in secret, but when is he going to make himself known? And that's when he shows up in the fall before he dies, the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Feast of Sukkot. And he shows up and he says, 
If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And then he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who believes in me will walk in light, not in darkness. And even as he's saying this, he's spitting on the ground to make mud, putting on a blind man's eyes to do the sixth sign, the healing of the man born blind. And as we had that, that uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about that particular passage, but we noted that that sign divides the crowd. It divides the people who are watching. Some are looking at him curiously, even believing in him, but others are wondering, who is this man? What is he doing? And they actually kick the man who had been born blind, who's, tr- who's teaching them. He can now see. They're blind now. He can see clearly. They kick him out, and Jesus says, Shep, you're bad shepherds. You're bad shepherds. You're kicking sheep out of the fold. I'm the good shepherd. And last week we talked about Jesus as the good shepherd, but we also noted that as he is talking about this good shepherd, that he's the good shepherd, and he's chastising the leaders for being bad shepherds, they're picking up rocks to kill him. They're making plans to arrest him. And all of these things are coming to a head as the signs increase, so the opposition increases. And today we're going to find that we have six signs, and today is number seven the seventh and final. And after this, we're going to make a turn in the gospel. We're no longer going to have these public signs. We're actually going to have the rest of the gospel. The second half of the gospel is about the last last week of Jesus's life. And actually, eight of those chapters are about the last day of his life. And so we're going to be, as we work our way up to Easter, our Easter in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at this idea about what is, what is this last week, the last day of the life of Jesus about what does he think is important to get across to his followers. And so today, we're going to take a look at this idea this, that as he performs this final sign, he's going to press the issues of his own identity and his own authority. Who has the power over life and death? And Jesus is going to show up and say, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even if they die. And Jesus is going to claim a power that the Jewish leaders do not have and that the nation of Rome thinks they have but do not have. Jesus himself will claim power over life and death. Are you guys ready for this passage? All right, it's long. It's long, so let's take a look. There's a few things in here. What I want to do is just kind of walk through it quickly, make some points, and see what is in this for us today as we think about Jesus and our encounter with Jesus today. All right, John 1, it says, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, um, they are introduced in the gospel traditions in Luke 10, 32 through, uh, through 42. And if your name is Martha, do we have any Marthas in here? You got a bad rap because if you are a Martha, okay, we can talk about Martha's freely then. But Mary and Martha, you have the story about Mary and Martha and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's running around getting everything ready. We get introduced to them in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, there's a parable about the rich man and Lazarus as well in the Gospel of Luke. So these three people, this Bethany family of two sisters and a brother uh, that, that seem to be well known to Jesus and Jesus will actually use them in his teaching. One thing that we know about Mary is Mary later on in the gospel is going to anoint Jesus with this costly perfume. 
So, and, they, and John actually makes mention of her as that person before he even tells the story, which tells us that the people who are reading the gospel, who know a little bit about Jesus' tradition, are already familiar with these folks. And if you were alive in that day, you might have even been able to meet some of these people. They would have been well known. But it says this about them. It says, uh, in verse 3, the sisters went to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of Man may be glorified through it. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he went to them immediately. That's not what your Bible says. That's, that's not what the Bible says, actually. It's actually this, this counterintuitive thing, like Jesus loved them so much that he didn't rush to their side. It actually says that he waited two days before he went there. Now, a little bit, so we have one little question, like, where was Jesus? Where, were, where is Bethany? Where is all this? So it says at the, end, at the end of last week, the leaders are picking up stones to kill Jesus. They want him dead, and they're looking to arrest him. So what Jesus does is he goes down from Jerusalem, down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know that story of the Good Samaritan? That's where that takes place. Uh, where Jesus heals Bartimaeus, that's in Jericho. Actually, Jesus would have been on this road quite a bit as he goes up and down to Jerusalem. But he goes down to Jericho and then out to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is doing his thing, or was doing his thing, because John's dead by now. Sorry, I, that's a spoiler alert. But um, Okay, so Jesus goes down over there. He's about a day's journey away. I think there's a couple things that I want to point out about this. Like One of the things in this this strange statement, he stays two days. Why does he stay two days more? Now, the standard answer to that question is, Jesus is making a plan that he wants to do this dramatic miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and that's why he stays two more days. Okay. Probably, by the time Jesus gets this information, okay, by the time Jesus gets this information, Lazarus is probably already passed away he's already dead because here's the deal it's about a day's journey down to down to jericho and out to the jordan river and a day's journey back up so if they find out lazarus is really sick mary and martha and of course like the fact that jesus loves them that they have they actually everybody's trying to find jesus and arrest him but they have access they have actually have access to the network that can get him a message think about how how inside they are with jesus like jesus does really love this family they have access to him even when he's far away. They know the network to get to him. Lazarus gets sick. They send a messenger to him one day's journey down. Jesus hears about it, and then he waits two days and then makes a journey up. That's four days. Now, later on, what we're going to find out is that when Jesus arrives back at the city or the village of Bethany, it's four days that Lazarus has been dead. If you look in here, If we look in here, it says in 11.17 that, that Lazarus has already been in the grave for four days, which means that they, anyway, all that to say, by the time the messenger shows up, Lazarus has already died, and Jesus is like, well, guys, uh, Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, hey, he's going to recover if he goes to sleep. And they're like, and in typical John fashion, that John is like, they don't understand. 
And there's going to be this question about when will they understand what is going on? If he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. And Jesus has to say in 11.14, I think this is, sometimes you just have to be um, clear, clear as kind, right? Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad he was, I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. All right. A couple things. I just want to set a little stage about Jewish death and burial customs because some of the story isn't going to make as much sense if we don't understand what were the customs that related to Jewish death and burial. So when you died, if you were Jewish and you died, what would happen is you would actually get buried on the same day. Same day as death, you would get buried. And what they would do is they would take the body and they would take spices and perfumes and they would wrap the body with these spices and perfumes with grave clothes and they would wrap them up. They would wrap the the mouth shut and the whole, everything would get wrapped up really tight. And then they would place inside of a cave, there would be these cave tombs that were hewn out in the middle of rock and you would place inside the cave, you'd have these little side outlets Um, But on the middle, you would have a little slab, and you would place the body on the slab. And then what would happen is that after a year of decomposition, you would take the body, and you would uh, put it into what they call an ossuary or a bone box. You would actually take the bones, and you would gather the bones and place them in the alcoves in the cave where your relatives had passed away and lived. That would be what they call you gather your bones to your father's. You would take that, that would be the idea, that's what would happen, okay? Now, one of the interesting things about Jewish folk belief during the first century was there was a well-known belief that after someone died, their soul would hang around for three days. Their soul would hang around for three days. And so, one of the most important things about this passage, this incident, this comment that Jesus waits two days... And then it says when he shows up, Lazarus has been dead, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Because once, in, in the folk belief, when, the, when decomposition begins, because the soul would hang around hoping to reunite with the body, but once decomposition would begin, the soul would take off. And so the point here is that everybody knows he's been dead for four days and he's beginning to decompose. Mary, Martha will say as much when Jesus wants to open the tomb, she's going to say what? hey, it's going to smell. He's already decomposing. And so this point that Jesus waits, why does he wait? He's waiting because there needs to be this amount of time because this can't simply be a resuscitation. Like Lazarus is not just, if you're like in the Monty Python, you know, like, I'm not dead yet. You know, I'm only mostly dead. Like, hey, bring, you got no Monty Python in here. Bring out your dead. Okay, you guys get it. Okay, I've outed all of you. You're bad, bad people. I'm just kidding. Okay, but he's not mostly dead, or even the princess bride, right? Like, oh, he's, you know, he's mostly, he's only mostly dead. No, he's dead, dead. Dead, dead. Dead and gone. Dead and soul is gone. Dead and decomposing. And that's going to be an important point for this story, because one of the questions is, one of the questions that we have to ask and what the people are going to assume is like, Jesus, it's too late. You showed up too late. 
And I think that's important for us to just pause on that because I don't know how many times in your lifetime you've just felt like telling Jesus, like, Jesus, I could have used you a few days ago. Like, you're a little late to the party here. Because everybody in this family is going to be like, Jesus, if you would have been here, it would have been different. But now that you're here, it's too late. And I think one of the things about this is as we think about the idea, it's going to reveal something about the identity of who Jesus is. It's going to reveal something about the power of who Jesus is. But one of the things it's also going to reveal is like, it is never too late. And God operates on a timetable that he says, look, I, I will deliver you at exactly the right time. At just the right time. I think it's interesting because for God, at just the right time. If you read like the story of Daniel, at just the right time, like Daniel's like, like they want to arrest me and they want to throw me in the lion's den. Um, like, could you save me? God could save him before they throw him in the lion's den. But what God wants to do is have them throw him in the lion's den and then save him while he's in the lion's den. Like for God, that's just the right time. It's not before, it's during. Or you think about the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's like, God, save us before we go into the furnace. And they're like, well, look, we're not going to worship you anyway, king, whatever. Like, but we will not bow our knee to you. You can throw us in the furnace. But God waits until they're thrown in the furnace to save them at just the right time. And I think for us, we, we go into this, we, we go into a story like this and we go into our lives and we're like, God, I know what the right time is for you to act on my behalf. And let me tell you what the right time is. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think we always, when we cry out to God, there's not a bad time to ask, but we have these expectations like, God, if you're going to do it, it needs to be done here and now. And sometimes Jesus is like, I love you, and I need to wait a couple days. And I don't know if you feel like that or if you've ever felt like that, but I just want you to know, like, Jesus understands, and we're going to talk about a little bit of his response, but one of the first things as we talk about this is just the timing of what is going on here, that Jesus is on his own time table. And I don't do this to shame any of us, but simply to give us some, some sense that, not to say, oh, you need to, you need to submit to the Lord and his timing. Like, in some ways, okay, yes, but also to say this, the encouragement is that it's never too late for Jesus to redeem something. It's never too late, ever, for Jesus to redeem something. And sometimes it doesn't come in the timetable that we think it's going to come, but Jesus is in the business of doing things on his timetable and doing them well with power and with authority. All right, so back to Jewish uh, burial practices, okay? So you've got the body, it's in the grave, but what about the family? What about the grievers? What happens to them? The day the person dies, they do all the work to wrap them up, put them in the cave, put them in the tomb, roll the stone so the animals don't get in. But then what they do is they go through in a Jewish practice what is called a shiva. The first day is, de is death and burial, but then there's six more days. Six more days is this practice of sitting in your home, and waiting for friends and neighbors and relatives to come in and to grieve with you. Your job as a family is to sit in your house and other people come to you and bring you food 
and bring you companionship and company and to grieve with you, Shabbat. And it was a normal, it was a normal practice. And so what's going on is that Lazarus dies and Mary and Martha, they do the work of getting him all ready for burial. They put him in the cave and now they're doing Shabbat. They're waiting in their house and other people are coming in. Look at what, um, uh, let's see. Look at verse, um, look at verse 19. It says, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem. So imagine, so uh, imagine two miles away, I got out my maps app, two miles away is Eisenhower Park. Okay, that's two miles away from here. All right, now imagine that you have about, oh, 400, 500 foot mountain between us and them, okay? That's the Mount of Olives. We're in Jerusalem, and if we're going to go to Bethany, we've got to go over the Mount of Olives. On the backside of the Mount of Olives is the, is the little village of Bethany, okay? And so people knew this family. They came from Jerusalem. They came from all around. They came to work with them in Shiva, to sit with them, to console them, to bring them food, to mourn with them. What's interesting is that Jesus is not interested in taking part in Shiva. Look at 1120. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Jesus will not go into the house. Like, this is really interesting. Like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is acting. He's like, he's asleep. I'm not going to Shiva. Like, Jesus is just like, I think you guys are overreacting. I don't know if that's what he's, he would, I don't think he would be as glib as that, to be honest, but I think some, there's, there's something in the story where Jesus is like, he knows something that no one else knows, and he knows that this is not what you think it is. And he says as much to Mary. Look at 1121. I'm sorry, to Martha. Martha goes out first, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what she's saying here is it's a mild, it's, it's what is called an indirect rebuke. She's saying, she's basically saying, you should have been here. And that's exactly what her sister's going to say. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's exactly what Mary's going to say. They both, both of these sisters are angry at Jesus. They're upset with Jesus. They know his power, and they know if, if you wanted to save him, three days ago was when you would have done it. Four days ago is when you should have been here. And if you were here, he would have been saved. But she hedges. She says in 11.22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't, she's not saying, I know you can raise him from the dead because it's Martha who's going to say later on, like, well, it's going to stink if you open it up. Like, you can't, we can't open the tomb. So, but she's simply saying, look, I understand who you are and what you're about. Jesus goes on to say in 11.23, your brother will rise again. And Martha's like, Martha, uh, in, the, in the tradition, Mary is like the emotional one, and Martha is the get-it-done person. She's the pragmatic one. So Martha just launches into this theological conversation. Yeah, I know about at the end times that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. You ever go to a memorial service and somebody wants to talk theology while other people just want to grieve? Like Martha's the one who's like, okay, I know at the last day that people are going to rise from the dead. And, and Jesus says, says to her, um, so I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 11.25, Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Which, by the way, is a great question. Do, do you believe this? I think we live in a world, we live in a world where we, we behave and we live our lives every day as if this is not true. That death is the end. That that's, the, that's it. And in a lot of ways, there is this sense of like, what is, what is this hope? And this is a very pointed question. Martha still believes, well, in her response, to her credit, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So what's interesting here, and this is, this is nuanced, okay? As we're, again, we're taking a fresh look at Jesus, and even as we go through this and we see Jesus through the eyes of like Mary and Martha, there's a little nuance here because Martha still believes that Jesus has access to the power of God. And I think, that's a, I think that's a really cool thing to believe. Like, she's there in the moment, and I wonder, you know, I always wonder, like, what would my reaction be in the moment if I were there? And Jesus were to say this. And I think that that response, like, hey, Jesus, I still believe that you have access to the power of God. And that's a cool thing. But what Jesus, what, what Jesus w- wants to go is one bit further. It's not that Jesus has access to the power of God It's that he and the Father are one. He does not need to ask the Father for resurrection and life. He is the resurrection and the life. It's not that Jesus just has access to a power apart from him that God the Father holds. He's saying, look, I am here. I'm here right now. I am the resurrection. I am the life. If you want to know what life is, simply abide in me. I am here. It's not this, and this is one of the things we oftentimes think that resurrection is in the future and life is in the present. And what Jesus is saying is that somehow, and again, I don't know how how this works, but that somehow life and resurrection are not something in the future but are happening right now. That being in Jesus, being in Christ, means that there's a quality of life that is available to us. That there is a joy, there is a peace, there is a salvation, there is a sense of well-being that is available to us apart from any circumstance that might happen in our lives. Because of the presence of Jesus, it actually makes a difference. Do you believe this? And again, I don't ask this to to say, this would be what Jesus is saying, is like, I am the resurrection and the life. Like, the fact that I'm here makes a difference. Do you believe that? I think what's, what, you know, I think sometimes we, we go through our lives and we're just like, okay, like, Jesus is great and, like, he keeps me out of trouble and that's what you think about your spouse, like, believe in Jesus because he'll keep you out of trouble or, like, your kids, like, believe in Jesus because he'll keep you out of trouble or maybe he'll bring, he'll give you some good habits or whatever. But I think the idea is that if Jesus is here, it actually makes a difference spiritually. It makes a difference it makes a difference in our life. It does make a difference in our habits, but it also makes a difference in just our, our demeanor, our well-being, that there's difference to be made by the presence of Jesus. 
He doesn't need to ask for the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that's why when we talk about putting our faith and trusting in Jesus, that asking Jesus to come and abide in us, that there's something that happens with that. Now, again, I would say, if you were like, well, Pastor Craig, can you explain exactly what that is? And there's a point where I would say, no, I I don't know exactly how that all works. Like, I don't know how resurrection works. Like, I don't know, people are like, well, what happened to Lazarus? Like, was he, when did he, when did he resuscitate? When did he resurrect? Like, and I'm like, look, I don't know. I don't know how this all worked. I'm reading the passage. I know that he does rise from the dead. I don't know how. He's going to die again eventually. Jesus, when Jesus resurrects, he resurrects to new life where he will never die again. That there is a hope that one day we will, we will resurrect ultimately to eternal states of life. How does that all work? I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus does, and faith in Jesus means entrusting yourself to Jesus and saying, I don't know and I will entrust myself to you. Or I doubt, I'm in a season where I'm doubting, and that means what I need to do is I need to put that to speech before God. My ultimate act of trust is just expressing my doubts to Jesus. Sometimes we think that that's an act of no faith. What I'm here to say is that the ultimate act of faith is when we doubt the most, not turning away from Jesus, but actually going to him and expressing our doubts to him. Like a Mary and a Martha saying, if you were here, he would have lived. You didn't come in time. Like, those are, that's an, those are acts of faith. Even if they are misunderstandings, it's still an act of faith to take whatever you are experiencing, whether it be death or sickness or suffering, and say, Jesus, what gives? Where are you? You should have been here. Those are acts of faith. Read the Psalms. That's what acts of faith look like, especially when we doubt, especially when we wonder where God is. That's not you struggling with faith. When you go to him, that is you expressing faith, even if it is with your doubts. That's the nature of faith. I love Thomas makes a, Thomas makes a little cameo in this one, doesn't he? Thomas shows up, and, he, and nobody can really figure out what Thomas is saying because when Jesus is like, let's go up there, and Thomas is like, well, let's all go so we can die with Jesus. And we don't know if he's like, if that's an act of, if he's saying that like seriously and solemnly or whether he's saying it sarcastically. There's actually a little bit of a debate about that. Is Thomas like, well, we should go so we can die with him. Why not? Like, if, like Peter's like, well, where else are we going to go? Let's march to death. Like, we don't know what he's doing, but Thomas makes, the doubting Thomas makes his appearance here and then later on, as when he does doubt, it is Jesus, is the moment of his most intense faith is when his doubts are in front of him. So I, I, I know this might not be the main thing about this passage, but I do want to put it forth to us that nobody at this point in the narrative thinks that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus. Everybody thinks it's too late. And would doubt if Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to raise it. No, that's not, that's not even on our radar. So Mary comes down. Here's a couple things I just want to note about, about this as we, we think about landing. It's a long passage. Just hang with me, everybody. Okay, 
Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of fast forward to the end because I want to uh, talk a little bit about this section. Um, in 11.28, it says, when she said this, this is Martha, so Martha and Jesus have their moment. I am the resurrection and the life. And then when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private. So she goes into the house. It's Shiva, right? Everybody's sitting around. And Jesus is kind of on the outskirts of town. And he hasn't like, made his appearance known yet. And Mary talks. She finds out he's there. She goes out secretly to talk to him. She comes back in and then quietly whispers to, to Mary, the teacher's asking for you. So Mary, nobody knows what she's doing. She gets up. She heads out of the house. Everybody thinks she's going to the tomb. Verse 29, when she heard it, she rose quickly, went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Listen to this, verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly, go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to Jesus and was, uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying the exact same thing that Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. And that's, that, again, that rebuke, like you should have been here. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. All right. Now, what, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I just want to pause on this, uh, on this. This is a passage where Jesus feels some pretty significant emotions, okay? And sometimes our translations, well-meaning translators, they kind of make our translations a little bit vanilla, okay? So I want to give us a little bit more of the scene, like, it sounds like Mary's coming out and she's kind of crying. She's got tears and she's, she's, she's um, and, but we all know that there's different kinds of crying. I hope. Guys, look, the older I get, the more I cry. So just hang with me here, okay? But we all know there's different kinds of crying. There's like tearing up, right? I'm not crying. Are you crying? I'm not crying, right? That's, the, that's that kind of crying. Or there's like a tear rolls down and you're like, you can see people like having a moment and they're wiping tears away, but they've made no sound, right? But we also know that we go through times where, look, crying means vocalizing it, crying out loud. And there's various, there's like whimpering, crying, and there's also like, you know, like snot coming down the nose, like snorting, crying. I don't want to, look, I'm just saying, we don't, but there's also, there's also wailing. We're not as used to it in Western traditions, but in the Eastern traditions, when someone dies and there's mourning, that usually it's not, it's not tearing up or a tear coming down or even just tears with no vocalization. Usually what this is, is some kind of vocalization. And so when it says, when it says that Mary, when Jesus saw her weeping, the verb there in Greek is that she is crying out. That she is, she is wailing. And so you have this, you have this, <laughs> you have this like theological conversation with Martha. I know there's going to be a resurrection at the end of all time, right? And then Mary comes out and she's like, if you were here, he would be alive. Like, that's the difference. And she's wailing. And it also says, it also says that the Jews who had come with her for Shiva are also wailing. And so you have this contingent coming out of the house to Jesus, 
and they're vocalizing their grief to him. They're crying out and they're wailing. And then it says that Jesus, it says says that he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The verb that's used, it's, it's actually a verb that's not used that often. Embriamai, um, excuse me. Um, translated as either deeply moved, in our translation, NIV as well, or that Jesus groaned, King James, or that Jesus sighed deeply, New English Bible, or that he was deeply touched, Good News Bible, or he's greatly disturbed, New Revised Standard Version. The verb actually has a sense of anger to it. They come out and they're, they're wailing. They're wailing about their grief. They're wailing at Jesus. And it says that Jesus has, has this mix of like grief and anger all at the same time. And there's this question like, what, what is Jesus what is, he, what is he angry about? Is he angry that they're wailing? Is he angry that they're weeping? Is it, like, but it's this mixture of grief and anger. And we know, that those are, we know that grief and anger are not separate emotions. Those are things that intertwine as we do grieve and as we work through that sort of grief. He might be grieved, sharing in the grief of the sisters and the mourners. He might be angry at death and the sin that causes it. Maybe even angry at the unbelief. But when we think about, go back to John chapter 1, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the word before all time was the creator of all things, was living in a place where when it talks about your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven, God's will and his kingdom has come in heaven. But on earth, earth has fallen. And when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word came down to fallen humanity. And Jesus lived his lifetime and saw the fallenness and saw sickness and saw death, saw his own stepfather Joseph pass away, saw people abused, saw people oppressed. And I don't know what it is about this moment, but for some reason this hits Jesus deeply some sort of grief and anger mixed together as he looks probably at the whole of the fallen human condition what have we become we might not entirely understand what Jesus is feeling But what I want to put forth to you is that it's important that he feels it. And not only is it important for John to note that, but for Christians through the rest of the New Testament to note that Jesus feels this. That God is not, and here's the point, God is not somewhere out there looking down at you in your trouble and saying, why can't they just get it together? And sometimes I think we think about that, that God is out there and he's just kind of looking at us like, what a bunch of idiots, right? I think think sometimes we think that. And the point that John is making here is God is not out there somewhere. 
the word has become flesh. And the word has gone to the edge of the Shiva, the morning ceremony, and said, you know what? I've had enough. I've had enough. We have to do something about this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin that process right now. And I know that when I do this, here's the thing, when Jesus does this, it is all going to go downhill within a week for Jesus. It's over. It's going to be over. Like he is going to be on a Roman cross in a week. But Jesus says, we have to do something about this. That when he looks at what you're going through, when he looks at either your suffering or your sickness or just the anxiety, whatever it is, what you will find is that Jesus is weeping with you. That Jesus is just as troubled at the state of our humanity as you are. Jesus is just as affected He is not one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but tested like we are. That's Hebrews chapter 4. It says also in Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That because we were in it, because we were in the middle of a fallen humanity, Jesus says, I'm jumping right into the middle of fallen humanity. Because one thing I want them to know is that they are not alone. That I'm not just watching from afar what their trouble is. That I'm not just delaying to make a point. That I have walked this path. I have bled. I have cried the tears and I have bled the blood that they have cried and bled. I have shared in their flesh and blood. I have lost someone dear to me. I have walked through suffering. I have experienced pain. I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like that you don't have a God who cannot sympathize with your weaknesses or what you are being tested by. You have a God who has said, I will come down and I will walk beside you. The Lord is my shepherd. He has a rod and a staff and he walks with us through the valley of deep darkness. He seeks us out. He will not let us go through alone. Well, we got to get to the punchline of the story. I know you're like, "Hey, get to it, man." The good part, we're we're just, and it is. It, it's almost all this. You got the Mary, you got the Martha, and then in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Again, he comes to the he comes to the tomb. I think this picture is so profound. He comes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, and that same verb, grief and anger, as he looks at the tomb. And I think as you, as you just think about whatever it is in your life that is a struggle or is just eating away at you, that Jesus looks at it and he looks at it with grief and anger. Not anger at you, but anger at the fallenness of humanity. How did we get here? Jesus looks with compassion, but there's a grief and an anger at what has become. 39, Jesus said, take the stone away. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man. Lazarus isn't even Lazarus anymore, right? He's the dead man. Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for it's been, he's been dead for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes. By the way, any time in the Gospel of John that Jesus lifts up his eyes, it is an act of compassion. Because he lifts up his eyes to talk to his father. And whenever he does this, when he sees this, the, woman at the, uh, the woman at the well, when all the Samaritans come out, he lifts up his eyes. When he goes, when he feeds the 5,000, he lifts up his eyes. And when Jesus does this, this is an act of compassion. He lifts up his eyes. And he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing by that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Okay, I mean, this is, it, it's, but, but the point, I think the point is like, it's not like, again, it's not like he's mostly dead and he's like, you know, it's not like he's laying in the tomb going, oh, I kind of feel, you know, uh, but no, he's like, he's vibrant. Like, he's like, get me out of these clothes. Get me out of the grave clothes. Like he, the reason why, like it, it's, it, he's struggling to get out and, and then Jesus has to say, hey, take those things off him. The man who came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. And it doesn't say anything else. Like I would have loved to have been there for dinner that night. Can you think of all the questions they're asking? Like, Lazarus, what the heck? What was it like? What do you remember? When did you realize? Like all these questions that we might have. But John, but John takes our attention. He's like, because this is the seventh sign. And as the signs increase, so will the division about who Jesus is. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees in Jerusalem and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. This is the great irony, right? John's like, yes! Yes, yes, everyone can believe in him, yes. And they're like, well, that would be a bad thing. And the reason why it would be bad, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And what they're concerned about, if Jesus keeps going on like this, he's going to keep gathering more and more followers. And I, I suppose the interesting thing is they're, they're not even doubting that he's performing signs. Maybe they're wondering about the veracity, like is this, did they, did he, is this some kind of sleight of hand or something like that? But they're, they're just like, no, this, he's got a real following and they're going to really follow him. And if we let that happen, what's going to happen is the Romans are going to come in, they're going to see this messianic movement, they're going to crush it, they're going to burn the temple and they're going to kick us out. So what we're going to do is we're going to hand him over to the Romans. And Caiaphas the high priest, he says, you know, it's, it's more expedient for one man to die for the nation. He says in verse 50, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for all the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And Caiaphas doesn't even know what he's prophesying. 
He doesn't know how true that is. And this is where John leaves us, that as we get a clear portrait of Jesus, what's going to happen is some people are going to say, I want to believe in him. And some people are going to say, it's a bad thing that you believe in him. And that really is the dividing line. Is it a good thing to believe in Jesus and to entrust yourself to Jesus and give yourself to Jesus? Or is it a bad thing to entrust yourself to Jesus? And that's the situation that we have for the last 2,000 years and in our world today. Is it not that is Jesus good or bad, but is it, is it good to entrust yourself wholly to him and believe that he is the Son of God, the only way to the Father? Or is that a bad thing? And what we're going to see here is that there are going to be people who say that's a bad thing and they're going to orchestrate a way to get rid of Jesus. But true to, John's, true to form, John with his irony is that the harder they try to get rid of Jesus, the more they fulfill his ultimate plan of Good Friday and taking care of the sins of the world, dying on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute, even as an example, and then raising again. Not to die again like Lazarus, but raising again to new life, resurrection, real resurrection life. And so here we have the beginning of the end of the book 